0: You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Tonight we have our own Sister Larissa, and she's going to come and teach to us the Word of God tonight. And so we want her to come and to take her liberty as the Lord leads. Would you put your hands together? Amen. We appreciate Sister Larissa, and we love her and thank her for being on the team and all she does. Preach the Word. Praise the Lord, everybody. Thank you, Pastor, for asking me to teach tonight. I'm excited. God's going to do great things. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 11, and you can go ahead tonight and just leave your Bible open because we're going to be reading it a lot, (laughs) if that's okay. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 11, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calleth to remembrance, say, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away." Join with me in prayer as we pray for tonight's study. God, thank you for your presence that we feel in this place. Oh, God, thank you for every plan that you have for us tonight. God, I pray that you would search our hearts. God, speak to us. Oh, God, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say. Lord, that we would leave this place changed more like you, oh, God, than when we came in. Oh, God, touch our minds and our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, we thank you, God we worship you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It would be easy for me to say that Mark is my favorite gospel if it wasn't for the fact that Luke and Matthew and John are also in the Bible. (laughs) So generally when people ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is, my answer is the one that I'm reading at the moment because the Bible, (laughs) the Bible is really awesome. So tonight my favorite book of the Bible is Mark. We've been reading Mark in youth class all of Mark, all together. So if you're here and you were here on Sunday night, then you have the advantage of familiarity. So when I say something that you already know, what you can do is you can say, amen, amen, but like in a really knowing tone so that everyone knows that you know what I'm talking about. That was specifically for Maddie and Jasmine, (laughs) but the gospel of Mark is very powerful and it's convicting and it's fast paced and it's exciting. It's widely agreed upon that it is the first gospel to be written and it was written likely scholars place it around 64 C E, which is the year which Rome burnt (laughs) to the ground. Um, Nero looked for a scapegoat and he found an easy scapegoat in the small Christian community. And so that led to the persecution of the Christians in unprecedented ways. I used the word unprecedented. I am that person, (laughs) Um, but lest whether or not the Bible, the gospel of Mark was written in 64 or a little before, or a little after, let's not miss the forest for the trees. (laughs) The point is that the gospel of Mark was written to a church that was familiar with suffering, that was looking into the flames, figuratively speaking. So Mark does not conceal the the theme of suffering in his gospel. It's present in the life of Jesus. It's present in the beheading of John. And we see Jesus dealing with grappling with the death of his friend. It's present when Jesus prophesies of the martyrdom and persecution of his disciples of James and John. And it's all to make the point that the kingdom of God is worth suffering for. It's worth dying for. It's worth your house. It's worth your brothers. It's worth your sisters, your father, your mother. The kingdom of God is worth your wife. It's worth your children. It's worth lands. Now, lands, that word doesn't mean maybe as much to us as it meant to the Jews, but in a culture that believed in generational inheritance, land was more than just the dirt that you stood on. It represented your hopes and your dreams for the future. That if my dreams don't come true in my lifetime, and if prophecies don't unfold in my lifetime, maybe they will occur for the generations that come after me. So it's very important to keep land in the family, especially for Jews. It represents promise. It represents inheritance. But the kingdom of God is worth more than land. It's worth persecution, all your worldly possessions, anything that you can think of, it's worth that. It's worth giving that up just to be a participator in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says in Mark 8, verse 34, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. So when Jesus was saying, take up his cross, he was alluding to the most embarrassing, the most shameful and humiliating concept of suffering that you could imagine in that culture. Right. And he hadn't experienced it yet. So when Jesus is saying things like, take up your cross and follow me, maybe his disciples didn't know how literally he meant that, but they knew that he was asking something costly. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. You're going to lose your life either way. So you might as well lose it for something worth losing, lose it for the kingdom of God, for the gospel, for what, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me. And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the son of man be ashamed when he cometh in glory, in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is the sentiment of Mark. This is the mood that we find ourselves in when we read Mark 11, that the kingdom of God is worth everything. It's worth suffering for Now let's find out where we are in Jesus's story in Mark chapter 11. Mark starts not with a birth narrative like the other synoptic gospels, but with the inauguration of Jesus's ministry at John's baptism, Jesus chooses his disciples. And then there's this really fast moving plot with miracle after miracle and teaching after teaching and then little pieces of Jesus's personal life. And then we get to the cross where time seems to move in slow motion. The narrative pace changes. We're almost there in Mark 11. Time is running out. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. In two page turns, depending on your Bible, Jesus will be arrested. In three chapters, Jesus will be crucified. These are the events that closely precede Mark 11. Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus heals the demoniac that his disciples cannot because they do not fast and pray. Jesus rebukes his disciples for their ambition to be the greatest. Jesus talks about how it would be better for you to enter into heaven maimed than to lose out on heaven. Jesus teaches about the sacredness and the sanctity of marriage. Jesus receives the children and tells his disciples and followers that unless you receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child, you will not enter into it. Jesus is met by a man in the way who runs to him asking, master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man is presumably a Jew because Jesus says that he knows the commandments and this man has done these commandments since he was a little child, but he lacks one thing. He's so invested in his material possessions. He's a man with great possessions. So Jesus says one thing you lack, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the man goes away sorrowful. How hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's like a camel entering through the eye of a needle, but with God, all things are possible. Who could be saved because we're all rich comparatively. And Jesus encourages Peter that there's no one who's given up wife or children or family or lands or possessions for his namesake that won't receive back in this lifetime, but more in the life to come. Jesus predicts his suffering and crucifixion. Jesus predicts the suffering of James and John, that they will drink of the same cup that he does. Jesus heals Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who is blind. And then Jesus comes nigh to Jerusalem. He sends for two of his disciples to obtain a colt. And they go to the people who have the colt and they say, The Lord has need of it. And so the people say, Okay, take the (laughs) colt. And they bring it back to Jesus. Why does he do this? It's so that he could fill the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 The king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the full of an ass. Jesus travels through Jerusalem. Verse seven, they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him. And he sat upon him and many spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's a direct quote from Psalms 118 and 25 through 26. It was getting ready to be Passover. Hosanna means, oh, save. Oh, save. I wonder what, if we could interview the people in that crowd, what would be their sense of expectation, perhaps perhaps varied responses of who and what they expected Jesus to be in the line of David. So a king like David, he's coming in the name of the Lord. Maybe they pictured somebody with messianic zeal who would with physical force fix the things that were wrong in the world. Maybe some of them recalled the prophecies of a suffering servant in Isaiah and saw Jesus with a mixed sense of hope and despair, knowing what what possibly this could mean. Maybe they didn't really know what they were trying to get at. Maybe it was just a cry for hope when they're saying, help us. It was getting ready to be Passover and that's significant because this was the time when the Jews remembered their deliverance from Egypt. So they remembered that God was a savior and God was a deliverer. And they would quote Psalms like Psalms 118 and the concept of God coming and being a savior was fresh in their minds save us. Oh, save, save us from disease. Save us from poverty. Save us from Roman oppression. Save us from our government. Save us from religious leaders who are oppressive. Save us from the system of religion that we have found ourselves in. Save us from the problems in our society. Oh, save us. I wonder if this cry was echoing in Jesus's mind as he made his way with the cross up the hill, Golgotha, to save them. This was not the salvation, surely, that they anticipated. What kind of a Davidic king dies on a cross? That was God's unexpected means of salvation. And it's still the only answer for our world today. That's crying in many quiet ways, save us, save us. We're just looking for an answer to the problems in our society. And the answer today is not usually what people are expecting, but it's still the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus traveled through the streets through cries of praise and honor from people who probably didn't realize what he was getting ready to do. And then he comes in to Jerusalem, to the temple, Jesus entered into the, um, into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the 12. Jesus came into the temple and just observed listening for a sound of worship, someone weeping, someone praying, sounds of humility, sounds of devotion, anything, but it was drowned out by the sounds of commerce. Sacrifices were part of the Jews worship ritual, but think of it this way. That wasn't supposed to be a rite that was... (laughs) Absent of emotion or passion. This was worship. And God's temple was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer. But Jesus is observing a place of commerce. People angry, people busy. It's loud, it's heated. People arguing, bartering over the price of doves. People arguing over the exchange of currency. People who have traveled a long way, perhaps being taken advantage of. You're crazy if you think I'm going to pay that much for a dove. This is what Jesus hears while he sits and observes the temple. When even tide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. The time of figs was not yet. So either Jesus has really unrealistic expectations of fig trees, (laughs) or he's trying to make a point here. (laughs) I love the way that these the scene just plays out. It's so cool how God inspired things to happen in the sequence that they did. That's an example, and especially in this passage that we're reading, the sequence of events. It's so cool. It's just so cool. (laughs) They come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple, began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, is it not written my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. It is written. And so we're going to go there. Isaiah 56. And we'll read verses one through eight. Isaiah 56 verses one through eight. Thus saith the Lord. Keep ye judgment and do justice for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And this is exciting. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Our second passage is in Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll read verses 3 through 11. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal? Murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom ye know not and come and stand before me and this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of Judah who are living immoral lifestyles. They're not godly. They're not holy, but, but they trust in the temple. Jesus says, it, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when the even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree, which thou cursed is withered away. The tree, Jesus was not just hangry when he cursed the fig tree, but the tree, I don't know if you've noticed how there's a story within a story. It was a parable of judgment. Just as Jesus curses the unfruitful tree, he confronts those in the temple who have turned the place of worship into a place of enterprise. And by doing so, he calls into question the religious authority of the scribes, chief priests, and Jewish elders. Jesus embodies a fruitful ministry. He is prayerful and he has power and he can do signs and wonders. He can curse fig trees and he can raise dead people. If you know me, you know that I am not cynical at all, even one bit about the church. I love the church and I love being a part of the church. I love being apostolic. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've kind of got it going on. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so don't take this, what I'm about to say, as my critique of the church. I believe we have an amazing assembly. But if we were to broaden our scope and look at Christianity in America, we can definitely see a market mentality, right? A commercialization of the things that are supposed to be sacred. What if in our day, God is doing something that we would not believe even though we know about it. (laughs) Because as frustrating as it is to have limits on assembling and on numbers, it also just so happens that people can't gather in masses with itching ears to hear people preach false doctrine. And God has a way of turning over tables and questioning our priorities, right? Especially in this time that we're living in. Because, you know, some of the things that had appeal before a pandemic, religious appeal, don't have that much appeal anymore. And what I mean by that is it's things that were appealing on social media, let's say, the kind of preaching and teaching that gets the most likes and shares. When you're sitting, quarantined, alone, missing your friends, having a quarantine dinner of Cheetos and Sorbeto, and you're sad. It just, there's something really unappetizing about a preacher with really nice hair and really nice teeth talking about how God is going to bless you. (laughs) And not even talking about the Bible Jesus got during this time, it could be that Jesus is challenging our priorities. But if we zoomed in a little closer, this is the time when we come to self examination because it's easier to look at popular Christianity and not ourselves. I find it interesting that after Jesus laments that his house is not a house of prayer, he begins to instruct Peter. About prayer. In verse 22, Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt. In his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any, that your father also, which is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. We know today that the Lord does not dwell in temples made by man's hands. And the temple that Jesus walked into and turned over tables and reprimanded people in was destroyed not long after this writing. But if you have the Holy Ghost, You are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 619 tells us that we are the location. We are the house, so to speak. What kind of a temple are you? It's easy to import an enterprising mentality into our relationship with God that robs God of true devotion and worship. I'll give you an example. If I come on Sunday and I sing at X decibels and I clap my hands this many times, the Lord will bless me with X emotional, whatever I need. We come with the expectation to receive something from God rather than to give. There's a song that we sang a lot at youth rallies growing up. It's very repetitive and very good. (laughs) And it goes, Lord, make me a house of prayer. I want to be a house of prayer. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus in what is called commonly termed the Lord's prayer teaches what the content of prayer should be, right? You know it, you can quote it. Let's quote it. Our father, Amen. That prayer wasn't very self-centered, was it? It's not driven by selfish ambition. Christian prayer prioritizes the will of God and the worship of God and the kingdom of God. But here in Mark, there's no recording of the Lord's prayer in Mark. There's no verbatim prayer. There's no, this is how you pray. But here, rather than giving us the content of our prayer, Jesus describes the qualities of one who prays. And he calls two things to our attention. The first is faith. Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursedst is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God for verily i say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he sa- he saith therefore i say unto you what things soever you desire when ye pray believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. Now let's not import the the temple mentality, the outside temple mentality into that prayer, right? Because in our millennial minds or my millennial mind, but your modern minds, right? (laughs) We can read, I just called you all millennials. You're so welcome. We can read that and think really selfishly, right? Like God is going, if I believe in faith, God is going to give me whatever I want. Okay, and then it's like hypocritical, right? Because we judge people who ask God for things like Lamborghinis and our prayers are still selfish. Right? When we looked at when we look at the way that Jesus prayed, and the way that Jesus lived, he went around healing people and cursing fig trees. (laughs) But why did he do that? So his disciples would have an awareness of who he was, of his power. And so I'd like to prioritize to our attention when we're reading this, that we ought to pray for the things that God desires, right? And that doesn't always exclude our own personal needs, but when we read things like this, when we read about praying in faith, we need to believe that when we pray for someone with cancer to be healed, God is going to heal them. When we read that, if we ask in faith, we shall receive it. We need to believe that when we pray for our friend who is suicidal, are struggling with depression, God is going to deliver them. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend just recently who's been backslidden for years, who was struggling severely with depression, self-harm, thoughts of suicide. And in one service, God changed that all that around. I follow her on social media and it's, she's one of those people, every single post is about God. And I love it. It's not cheesy to me at all because I get it. I know where God brought her from. God can do what we ask him to. God can do great things. God can save people. Do we believe that when we go about our casual lives, do we have God's heart for the people who ring up our groceries? Do we believe that if we pray for them, God can save them? If I pray for them right now, God can minister in their situation. Have you ever had somebody come up to you in public and start oversharing? I'm either like an Like super introverted, don't want to talk to anybody when I'm buying my produce, or I accidentally befriend somebody at Fresh Time, okay, and then they're telling me their life story. But I've tried to become more comfortable when people tell me what's like wrong in their lives, with just saying, "Hey, can I pray for you?" When what if we did that, and what if we really believed that God hears us when we pray? We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The power of God resides in us. We're called to do greater works than he did. You have the power of Christ on the inside of you. So when you pray, you ought to believe that God is going to do it. You ought to believe that God is going to show himself strong, that he's going to perform. The second thing that Jesus mentions is forgiveness forgiveness is one of those things that we have to like keep coming back to because we think that we've forgiven when we haven't. Forgiveness is always tested in our lives. (laughs) We can come to an altar and and pray and and forgive someone who's hurt us. But then uh, in an opportune conversation, when the joke will be really funny, that's when We get to see if we've really forgiven or not. When somebody brings up their name and we have a a really good tidbit to share, that's when we really know if we've forgiven or not. But we ought to forgive because we need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I remember (laughs) this is like one of the most embarrassing things that I've ever had to do. Okay. Whenever I was younger, there was a girl and this girl liked my boyfriend. And so right there, oh my goodness, the setup, I did not like her and I had not had the Holy Ghost, but for five minutes and we went to church camp and I gossiped about her. I dragged her name through the mud. And I remember a couple of years later, I had forgotten about it, but I was praying one night and the Lord told me, You need to apologize to that girl. <laughs> I was praying for forgiveness about something that I had done. And I listened and I reached out to her and I said, That's like the most awkward conversation ever, right? hello, I'm sorry for gossiping about you to all of our friends. I'm sorry for the really mean things that I said two years ago. Okay. Super awkward, but (laughs) super duper awkward. And I was like, she is going to block me on every account. Like this is going to be the end and I have to see her at church camp. It's just going to be the worst. Okay. But then she messaged me back pretty much right away and was like, this meant, so much to me because I was bullied a lot. You weren't the only one. And I never got apologies. I never got I'm sorry. And she told like, I was so humbled. I'm like sitting here reading my text message crying. She's like, I respect you. I appreciate our friendship. And I needed forgiveness from her, but that God did a work in my heart. Whenever I just humbled myself and apologized when I stopped thinking that I was too high and mighty to say, I'm sorry to somebody. I know I'm not a perfect person. Okay. I've had to apologize for gossiping about my friends. I need forgiveness from God and I need forgiveness from people. I've been there. And so if that's the position that I have been in, I need to be willing to extend that to others because it's been me. And if you're honest, it's been you too. Faith and forgiveness. These aren't visible sacrifices. These aren't doves that we bring before an altar. These are intangibles. These are things that only God sees. Only God sees the heart of a worshiper. Only he sees if you have faith and if you have forgiveness. If you're lacking faith tonight, I pray that God would increase your faith. That's a rough spot to be in. I've been there, but God is able to increase your faith. If you'll ask him to. If we could stand We cannot afford to substitute a commercialized rendition of religion and worship like Jesus observed in the temple for true worship, for true prayer, for a life of true faith. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God search us tonight. Lord, we don't want to just go through the motions of worship. God, we don't want to enter into your temple casually. Oh God, Lord, we don't want to take a casual approach to your presence, but God, we want to have hearts that are after you. Oh God, fill us with faith today. Oh God, you see any individual in here who is lacking faith. Oh God, I pray that you would increase our faith. Help us to believe That you are the God who does exactly what you say you're going to do. You're more than able to do the things that we ask you to do in your will. God, help us today to forgive those who have hurt us. To forgive those, oh God, who have talked bad about us. Help us to forgive Jesus those who have not asked for forgiveness. Because you have forgiven us. Lord, help us to forgive others for their Trespasses, so that we will be forgiven, so that you will hear our prayers. God, we pray today that you would transform us. Lord, let our hearts be the house of prayer, oh God. Lord, let my life, oh God, be a life of prayer. Lord, that when I pray, oh God, I would pray your kingdom, that I would pray your will, oh God. In Jesus' name, help us to be houses of prayer. God, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness in Jesus.